Lost the love of heaven above, chose the lust of the earth below. Eleven saintly shrouded men come to wash my sins away. All right. Good morning. Today is Saturday, January 9th, 2021. And this is Lit with Mitch. Um, or It's Lit with Mitch. That's the actual name. I should stay on brand. It's Lit with Mitch. Welcome. I'm Mitch. I read powerful literature out loud, beginning to end. Uh, and I'm seeking to expand my knowledge about topics with which I'm not as familiar as I'd like to be. I've been reading uh, the Bible for the past eight episodes and for the foreseeable future until it's over. Um, but I finally have finished the book of Genesis. What a read so far. Um, and I know I'm told that it's not even one of the better, <laughs> it's not even the best book <laughs> in the Bible. So I'm really looking forward to the rest. Okay, so today I am joined by my friend CJ Collins. Um, I have known CJ for almost four years. Um, we met uh, as business associates initially, um, and his wife works uh, at the company that I work at now. Um, she's always worked here, um, but I've known CJ more or less for about four years. And CJ is the exact kind of uh, religious or biblical scholar that I'm looking for. Um, he doesn't do it professionally. He's a businessman <laughs> himself. Um, but as I understand it, CJ grew up as a pastor's son. He was a youth pastor himself. Um, he's raising two young children um, into the Christian faith. And by all accounts, he is a, a model Christian. Um, if I say so myself, CJ is among those kind of people that I look at and say, here is a brilliant, kind-hearted, wonderful person. I want to know more about, that's why I'm reading the Bible. I want to know more about what, they, what helps them get up in the morning. How do they live their lives? Why is this so meaningful to them? Um, so CJ is one such individual um, that helped me make the decision to start with the Bible and to actually dive into this as an intellectual pursuit, given that I have been a lifelong atheist. And I've, I've liked saying lately that I'm a lifelong atheist with, uh, with strong Christian sympathies. And so I'm gonna leave it at that. I wanna introduce CJ. He's gonna talk with me about the book of Genesis specifically today. Um, and we're gonna go all over. It's gonna be pretty much an open format. I do have a few things I just wanna ask about as we get into it, but CJ, do you have, uh, just to kind of introduce yourself now that I've said anything, if, do you have anything that you'd like to say um, just in response or just about the book of Genesis or your Christian faith in general? Oh, yeah, sure. First of all, I think that may have been the nicest, warmest, kindest introduction I have ever received ever. So thank you for that. I really appreciate it. Um, Welcome. Uh, and it is interesting. So as somebody who follows, uh, follows Jesus, a Christian, it is um, one of our main goals is that not that people get are convinced or, or learn about Christianity because of what we say, but because they watch our lives. And so to hear you say those things is uh, that carries a lot of weight for me. 
And it just is a reminder as a Christian that like, you just, you never know what, how, how, you never know what people think or how many people are watching the way you live your life. And so anyway, so it's kind of gratifying to hear you say that. I really appreciate it. I should also say that I have, um, my dad was a pastor, is still a minister, a licensed minister, has been my whole life. Um, and his dad was a pastor as well. So when I became a licensed minister, I was the third generation licensed minister. And I'd say licensed because our denomination is the Assemblies of God and they're the ones who issued me my you know, license. Um, and so anyways, um, so I'm like third generation licensed minister. I am no, I'm not licensed anymore. I allowed my license to lapse when I wasn't doing it occupationally anymore. So just know that. Is that, is that licensed, just so I understand, is that licensed by a church? Yeah, licensed by the denomination, exactly. So the Baptist, you know, Southern Baptist denomination would be the ones who, you can't call yourself a a licensed Baptist. Do they have like continuing education to keep your license, like a realtor? Uh, It's more like continuing to pay your dues. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Um, Actually, they they call that tithing, you know? Yes, of course. Right, so your regular church member would pay their tithes to their local church. And if you are a licensed minister in the Assembly of God, each denomination will have their own kind of rules about this. But in the Assemblies of God, you pay your tithe or at least some portion of your tithe to the denomination to support the function and role of the denomination. So I was just imagining for a moment that there might be like continuing education courses of all uh, varieties, the same way they have for right. like realtors or loan officers. Like there was one realtor uh, right. course that I took that was real estate law and marijuana legalization, which you wouldn't imagine are actually related, but they really but are. But I bet it was popular. And I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking something along the lines of Jesus Christ and marijuana proliferation, <laughs> right? Two right. hour course. <laughs> so I, what I'll say is that um, as a minister, and, and when I was minister and my dad can, could still attest to this, but they don't have like required continuing education. They do sure. have certain standards that are required, one of which is regular church attendance. If you're not a minister, you either have to be ministering in church or attending church. If you just drop out and go to church anymore, then they'll yank your license. And yeah. then you would have to do the qualifying actions. To right. right. And then they do regularly have like conferences where they get together and have services and that sort of thing. And that's less continuing education and more like spiritual renewal most of the time. Um, and so, but those aren't required for your license. They're just, you know, bonus, I guess. Anyway, and, and that's, as I know it in the assemblies of God, right? So uh, there may be, there, it may be possible that, you know, some highbrow, you know, mainline denomination requires some sort of sure. continuing education, but I'm not well, aware of it. And for the listeners, uh, for the purpose of this conversation, I just want everyone to assume that um, CJ will only be speaking from his own experience, from his own denomination, and that it is obviously possible and probable, well, it, it is, that other people of other denominations may interpret or believe things which which are different. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I, so I've been a Christian though my whole life. I mean, well, I, I remember praying the prayer to receive, you know, salvation as we call it, um, at like five years old. And so, um, yeah, have always, have always just sort of marinated in scripture. I did take, I went to a, a Christian school and took several Bible classes that are a prerequisite of going to that school for everyone, even though my, my degree technically is in political science, mm-hmm. which is kind of crazy. Um, 
And then, uh, and one of the classes I took was on Genesis, but that was like 20 years ago. So cut me a little slack if I don't remember some of the stuff about the book, um, the historicity of it, but, um, but. You probably know more about it and I just got done reading it. Um, and just for, for, so that listeners understand, because this being an interview about Genesis might be the first episode that someone would watch of me um, or of my podcast or listen to. Um, I am very interested in better understanding, well, first, just for myself, reading the Bible for myself. As a lifelong atheist, I'm going to just admit publicly, when it comes to religion or Christianity, I have always seeked out information which would confirm my existing bias. I would always try to find the bad things in this book that I thought, well, this is... We can throw the whole damn thing out now, right? <laughs> um, and I'm, I candidly have always known better. I just have been intellectually lazy in this area and I want to not do that. And so as a, uh, an affirmation of my commitment to that, I'm actually reading the Bible beginning to end, but I mean, this is not a quick read, right? No. I'm on, I just did seven episodes um, averaging about 45 minutes each. I take about 20 to 25 minutes before each episode to review what I read and see if there are any more thoughts I want to read um, before I start a new episode or any more thoughts I want to present on the new episode. I mean, this is like legitimate self-directed Bible study. And so I have told everybody from the beginning that I'm going to get stuff wrong as far as my interpretation Certainly my pronunciations of names and cities um, has a, embarrassing, but I'm, I'm ready to kind of present my ignorance as I go through all this and I bring you on and other guests in the future to help me put this all in order. And so just to kind of start specifically talking about Genesis itself, tell me what it means to you. I want to know as you walk through your day-to-day -day life and carry this with you, what does the book of Genesis mean to you? Um, so I think that it is sort of natural in humanity. Like I think humans generally, myself included, are always looking for the answer to the question, how did I get here? Uh, where did we come from? What is the meaning of life? You know, the, the big questions. And as a Christian, the, the good news for someone like me is that um, the book of Genesis, especially the origin of earth and creation, kind of helps provide that, that checks that box, right? That, that okay, um, I don't have to continue to ponder for the rest of my life where the earth came from or how humans got here. Um, and it, I, can, I can read what the Bible says and I can choose to believe that and that fills that spot for me, right? And, you know, there are plenty of folks who will debate the accuracy of the origin of, of Earth and whether or not it was a true history or more of a mythology and then you know, that sort of thing. But as a, as a believing Christian, right, I can move past that and, and, and weigh deeper questions or more relevant questions to my daily life, right? So, so it helps to feel that, you know, where did I come from? What, is, what does life mean? If you can place yourself in the context of how the Bible says we all got here. So that's one thing. But for me also, 
the book of Genesis, as I read it, first of all, there's some crazy, <laughs> as you noted many times as I was watching your podcast, there's some crazy stuff that happens in the book of Genesis. Um, and th so that's, there's always a bit of entertainment factor there that you, you can read the plot twist where they said, oh, hey, get circumcised and oh, never mind. Here's my sword. We'll just slaughter everybody. Right. Some that crazy was, stuff. That was particularly, um, honestly, that was like, like almost particularly uh, demonic and disturbing right. because right. they, it was deliberate to make them, you know, defile themselves first and be in pain and be, right. um, you know, swollen and then to, to betray them like that. I mean, just, God. Yeah. Ruthless. Well, there's a couple of ways to read that too. And we can talk about that in particular, but the, um, it was funny because as I was watching your episode of that and you were reading, of course I have to get circumcised. Oh, geez. There was a whole, a whole, um, indignation regarding the fact that there was this requirement for cir circumcision. I was like, Oh, just wait, Mitch, just wait. It's coming. It's yeah. coming. Yeah. And then, uh, and then, and then, it, and then you read the plot twist and it was great. It was fantastic. That was a good episode. Um, but the interesting thing about that too, is that, there was some degree to which um, if it, it was like Jacob, if I'm not mistaken, I'm trying to remember, but I, if I'm not mistaken, it was Jacob that suggested that, hey, if we're going to do this thing with our families, you're going to have to, everybody's got to get circumcised, right? Um, Jacob said that. And then they said, okay, we'll, we'll do it. You know, all of this predicated on the rape of a young girl. So all of the, the, the beginning of all this is, uh, has a horrific beginning. Um, and and they just were like, okay, let's make it okay. And which, I mean, if you harken back just not that many decades ago, if a young girl, um, you know, got pregnant out of wedlock or some other shameful thing, which is not the same thing as rape, just to be clear. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, anytime sort of sex outside of marriage was mentioned, then it's like, well, you know what, let's just get them married and it'll be fine. And nobody, look, everything will be fine, you know? Um, and so that just sort of reminds me of that, the way we, that has been hand, handled even just within the last couple of decades. Uh, culturally. But anyways, it was Jacob that said, hey, I think this is what you're going to have to do if we're going to do this. And if we're truly going to intermarry, in other words, you have to you have to enter into this covenant. In order to be in my family, you got to be a part of this covenant we have with God. Because uh, if you're not in the covenant, then you, we're not going to be, you're not going to be in our family, right? Uh, so they said, okay, yeah, we'll do it, right? Which is a smart move on their part. If you look at how rich and wealthy and blessed, frankly, Jacob and his family are, why wouldn't you want to be a part of that? But then, um, but then it wasn't Jacob's idea to go through and slaughter everybody. It was his sons who actually just, so it's almost like the way I read it, it was like the, the slaughter was not premeditated on the part of Jacob. It was more of a crime of opportunity on the part of the sons, right? They're like, okay, now that Jacob's done this, they've made this agreement. Look, you know what? I bet we can do, um, which I think is a slightly different read than, hey, I tell you what, we'll have them all get circumcised. And then when they're in pain, then we'll slaughter them, right? So it's a slightly different read as I read it because um, Jacob, that was the circumcision was Jacob's idea, but then the slaughter was the son's idea. So more of an opportunistic thing than a premeditated thing, if that makes sense. Well, and they, uh, when it comes to the, cause you, you're right, this all did, the, the whole sequence was predicated on the rape of a young girl, Jacob's daughter and the sister of all the brothers. And I mean, I was, uh, I was disturbed at first that they were even willing to make peace in that way, right? I know, right? Um, that Jacob even brought it out. And I, I can't blame the brothers for wanting justice. 
um, towards the specific individual, right? right? But I mean, they obliterated the whole they, the whole town. They yeah, the whole town. They looted, plundered, killed them all, took all their stuff, took their wives and kids, and enslaved them. But was that is that approved by God? No, I mean, I, at least not in not in my view, right? So. So let me back up just a little bit and then we'll come back to that. But, okay. but here's what I see when I read the book of Genesis, here's what it means to me on a day-to-day basis. Okay. Right. And I don't, I don't read the book of Genesis every day, but right. um, I actually, I tend to do kind of what you're doing, which is I like, um, I try to just start at the beginning and start reading through over the course of the year. And, and when I say read what I actually do as uh, every day, as I get ready for work, I just turn my Bible app on and I just listen to somebody else read it to me as I'm yep. showering and getting ready and whatever, which is why I'm telling you I need an audio version so that I can have Mitch reading it to me in the mornings. Hey, it's on um, Spotify now. It should be. I okay. Think. All right. Good. Um, anyways. So, but every day, what this means to me is that Genesis is an illustration of the relationship that God wants to have with humanity, right? Adam means human in ancient Hebrew, right? So Adam uh, then his name is actually just the word human to them. Right. So, um, that's about as far as my Hebrew scholarship goes, just so you know, (laughs) but, um, but Genesis is an illustration of the relationship that God wants to have with humanity. And then we messed it up, right? Adam, Eve, uh, sin entered the world because of their inability to trust God. Right. And that you'll find that's an overarching theme throughout the entire Bible, Old and New Testament, is that when when folks screw up, it's because they didn't trust God. Right. And, and you look at Adam and Eve didn't trust that God what God had the best intentions for them. And so they believe what the serpent said. Then you get to Abraham, who didn't. Let me, trust. Let me pause. Let me pause you there, um, because that's one of the first things I highlighted um, yeah. as a note in the book of Genesis is. The Lord, play, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend over and wa- to watch, to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may eat, freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Right. Why? <laughs> Why put the tree there? <laughs> this is, first, this is not my highlighter. This is a meat thermometer. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> Why, why put the tree there? <laughs> okay, so I, this is a fantastic question, highlighter would notwithstanding. Um, so I, the reason this is a great question is because if the tree was, were not there, then the rest of the Bible wouldn't need to exist. So because Genesis is the story of how what God wants, how we screwed it up, and then the rest of the Bible, Genesis and the rest of the whole Bible, is God's effort to regain his relationship with humanity, to reestablish the relationship he wanted all along. Um, So that's what the whole rest of the Bible is basically about, right? And every time, like I say, every every time there's a screw up or whatever, it generally is because whoever didn't trust God, right? And they decided to do their own thing and not follow what God asked them to do because they didn't trust that God was right or didn't trust that God had the best intention for them. So that being said, um, here's what, here's my thought or my understanding of why the, the tree is there, right? The tree of knowledge of good and evil is in the garden because if they were robots, their relationship wouldn't matter that much, 
right? So the, tr the, the, the tree is there to give them, to provide essentially free will. They have the opportunity to make a choice. And that, in that way, they're choosing a relationship with God has a much deeper meaning that if, than if they had no choice to have a relationship, right? And so th the reason the tree is there is um, it establishes the fact that they have a choice to have a relationship or not to have a relationship. Um, and that by, by continually making the relationship to establish, uh, or continually making the choice to establish a relationship or maintain a relationship with God, that makes the meaning of that relationship all that much deeper, right? Whereas if like, hey, you're in this garden and I feed you and I take care of you and you don't have any choice about it. It does. It makes it well, cheapens the relationship. That, that would be that would be like God created pets, essentially, right? And not children. So right. I under I understand that. One of the things that I think about is, you may be curious because one of the other reasons why uh, I've chosen to read the Bible is because I've become extraordinarily interested in the last three or so years about the systems that men have created, men and women, but the mm -hmm. systems that men have created that endure, that help them to make sense of the world, to cooperate with one another. Um, right. And essentially I would view, you know, all the various religions of the world, they are all technologies that men kind of developed over the years, mm -hmm. thousands of years ago for certain, um, but right. they, they, they allowed civilization to uh, come to pass, to exist. They allowed us to move from, you know, one stage of our, uh, you know, existence into a completely different level. Um, and we're still there, right? I mean, we're still moving, moving through them. And whenever I read, you may freely eat the fruit of the, every tree in the garden, except the tree of knowledge of good and evil, to me, I mean, that's, that's original sin, right? So I'm not getting yep. anywhere, anywhere new. I'm not nope, saying that, anything new here. Yep, original but sin. That is the acceptance. I guess I'm saying like, that is like the acceptance that there is, everyone would eat the tree of knowledge, right? Would eat from the tree of knowledge. Right. Who, who like would have made a different- how could you not? Right, who would make a different choice, right? I mean- everyone and that's the I mean as Christians it's easy to look back and just say man if they wouldn't have done that if they hadn't have done that if Eve had just stopped you know you know it's Eve's fault everyone wants to blame Eve uh, as if Adam wasn't there um, and uh, then we wouldn't be then sin wouldn't have entered the world you know all of the negative consequences of life wouldn't exist we would be living in nirvana and and okay maybe that's true but the fact of the matter is well if Adam and Eve hadn't done it then Cain or Abel would have done it or Seth well, or one it, of their kids. It, Somebody it, somewhere would have. To me, it's almost as if that passage is there. If I, that passage is there, the tree is there essentially to say it is what it is. And the rest follows. We have to exist from here out, um, which is getting to what you were just saying. So I, I actually, while I vocal, I verbalize it differently I think I actually understand or understood that at the time that the rest of the Bible follows from huh, the roots of that tree being there. Right, right, exactly. There's, there's no need for salvation if you don't have anything to be saved from, right? If, if life is perfect and we all live in paradise, yeah, you know, Eden, then, uh, then, then the, the need for salvation doesn't exist, right? But the truth of the matter is, 
if, if Adam hadn't, hadn't have eaten of the fruit, Eve, then one of their kids would somewhere, some, there's somewhere, somehow, given the opportunity to freely decide, somebody would have, right? If it, if it had and gotten so, all the way down to me, <clears throat> I would have eaten it. Right. And as would I probably, right? I mean, I think it would be inevitable that just everyone would have, right? It's just far too tempting not to. So, um, so, but, the, so go ahead. All right, finish that thought. And I've got one, another line I wanted to get to. Well, so the, the, the tree is there <clears throat> to establish that, that men have free will, right? And that we can make a choice. And that when we choose to have a relationship with God, things go well. And when we choose to avoid God's plan, then things don't go well because we don't know what we're doing as well as God knows. So that's sort of like a really overarching theme of the whole Bible is learning to trust God. And you find it all over all over Genesis. Abraham, well, about, Isaac, they all screwed this so, up. <clears throat> so I'm going to save my comment I was going to say because of what you just said. So what about me? For me, it appears life is going tremendously well, but I'm not adhering to god's plan i don't trust in god's plan um in that sense because i just you know i've i've not been a believer or a follower of christ i've not been a believer in god um and i do believe that a lot of the good things that have come out of my life have been from me living very consciously and intentionally mm -hmm. um and aware of my surroundings and making good decisions um and i don't always make good decisions i'm not always right about what i've done um, and so I, I guess I would wonder how, I mean, how would you respond to that? How could my, is, and I talk about this in, in other episodes because it comes up a lot that he succeeded because the Lord was with him. He admitted the Lord. Uh, that was, that was, gosh, what was his name? Don't tell me. I know his name. Oh, Joseph. Yeah. was so successful because the Lord was with him. He was successful before he became a slave. After he became a slave, he was a successful slave. Then he was successful as the governor of Egypt, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, like, no, all because the Lord was with him. Um, and I understand, like, to me, the way I kind of translate that into my life is it's an ontology. It is a way of being in your life. Yeah. Right. He is being who he needs to be in any circumstance and in any situation to, to create a desirable outcome in his life. Mm -hmm. That's how I translate it to my life and, and essentially answer my own question. But I'm curious how you would answer that question. How do I continue to, to thrive if I am not at the mercy of God's plan, at least acknowledging it? Right. Um, so a couple of things for starters, I would say <clears throat> that all truth, all real actual truth is God's truth. So that's my view as a Christian. Mm. It's true. If it's wise, the universal truths that we can all acknowledge come from God. He establishes them. He established them prior to this book even being written, right? That, that human life has value, uh, et cetera, right? And so to the degree that you are making good choices, it is because you are acknowledging universal human truths. If I work hard and and do and 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 put effort into something, I'm much a lot higher, there's a higher likelihood that I will succeed. Universal truth. In my view, that comes from God. 
right? You know, so think about the universal truths to which you adhere that have made your life successful. In my view, you, I think you will find that, well, I find that those come from God. And as you continue to read the Bible, what you'll find, and you've already started to discover, is a lot of the universal truths that have made your life successful have made America, say, a successful country and Western civilization the most successful in all of human history. Mm-hmm. Those, those truths are universal truths and they come from God, right? That, so that's my view. And further, um, as you read the Bible, you'll see they're in there, right? If you wait till you get to the book of Proverbs just to get to start. I mean, there's a lot in there about don't be lazy, work hard. Maybe don't say everything that comes through your mind and say, you know, <laughs> hold back and don't act out of anger. And there's a lot of really just basic human truths and universal truths that are in the Bible and the reason they're in the Bible is because they actually predate the Bible. They come from God from before the Bible was ever written. Well, and, and that's when that goes back to me saying that this is, this is a decision. This is a decision making process. This is a code of values by which men can live to to best to have shared values and best cooperate and grow a civilization together. Right. And as a like I said, as a lifelong atheist, I am not ignorant to the fact that my life is so great and amazing today and so easy because I, this is my home office and, you know, I make my living from this office. Right. Um, in your new home that you bought recently, if I'm not my, Yeah. In my new home that I bought recently um, last, you know, five months ago. And, and all of that stems from the recognition of individual liberty, ultimately, Yep. And all of that stems from the, Judeo- the Judeo-Christian ethic, um, yep. which is another reason I'm reading this so I can better understand all of that. I know it, but I want to deeply get it. So, well, here's the rest. I of think it. whenever you say that it comes from God or that it's a universal truth, like I don't, I completely agree that I would consider them to be laws of success. Yeah, just like um, a law I don't mean of like laws of success in, in necessarily like an individual way, but laws of like a system by which right. us as living organisms who have sentience and intelligence, right. if we abide by these great things will happen. Right. And uh, I don't know if if I may not call that God, but I, I agree. Ultimately, right. conceptually, I agree with what they mean. And I and I. Totally agree. And I I think the degree to which a society begins to deny universal truths established, in my view, by God, and then that's where you start to see the crumbling of a society, right? So, and we we don't have to talk about politics, but I think that that when you start to deny the fact that, that, hey, if you really want to get ahead in life, you should work hard, like as a starting place. And not, and of course, there are individual people to which you can apply that in individual circumstances, but just as a general rule, right? You know, there may be exceptions or whatever, but as a general rule, that's a, that's a rule. Um, Then those, those come from God and in the same, and I think you're right. I think of them as laws of success, much like the laws of physics, right? Yes. Which I also think God established, right? Um, And, and they, they just work because of who we are. Since you bring up physics, that's a great segue into this next part and this next. Well, let, uh, let me point. let me say one more thing yeah. before you segue. Okay, if that's okay, and that is that when when you ask why is it that I'm successful even though I'm not a believing Christian, and I say it's because you have an adherence to universal truths that were established by God. But I would also say that 
that's the macro view, right? The macro view is that God has these certain sort of uh, um, universal truths that if we live by and adhere to, then generally, universally, we will be more successful. But on a micro level, because I think the Bible loses its power if it's only macro, right? If it's just like, okay, this is how it speaks to society. And right. as a Christian, I think it doesn't just speak I, to I society. It speaks to me, right? And so I can't just say, well, a whole society needs to adhere to these things. I read it and say, no, I, I need to turn that inward and say, okay, well, how do I live out these truths? And I would say to you that, yeah, you are definitely benefiting from these universal truths established by God, which is great. But the story of your life is still being written. And um, you say you're not living in God's plan. But I say we don't really know the end of God's plan. So we don't know where your life goes. And we don't know what, you, what part you play in God's plan. I don't know what part I fully will play in God's plan. And so... Who knows? Interesting, because in the last episode of It's Lit with Mitch, in the last like three or four chapters of the book of Genesis, I kind of talk about that because it 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 gets into how Je oh, Jacob is Joseph's father. Yeah, there's Jacob, Joseph, yeah. son. Yeah. So Jacob is talking about how, you know, he had these sons and then he thought at one point Joseph was dead. And then he ended up, you know, how wonderful that the Lord, you know, provided for him. And ultimately, Joseph was alive. And he has now now Jacob has grandchildren to boot. Right. Right. Um, but there was, you know, a, a good portion of his life and his elderly years and Jacob's elderly years where he was absolutely depressed and demoralized. Right. Losing that son, um, which right. there's an art there's. Why can't he be happy about the other sons he has with him for one? Yeah, but try losing one of your children, right? If you I haven't experienced that. True. That's you know. absolutely true. Um, so I don't want to. Right. Which also, that. by the way, this speaks to a bit about when, when Joseph says, bring that other son here. That's, this is part of why jo Jacob is like at wit's end, because like what you're telling me, you, they, Joseph is gone. My other son is still in Egypt. And now you want to send a third son to Egypt that this guy wants to see. And he's afraid of use, losing yet another son. Keep in mind, Joseph and Benjamin are the children of his favorite wife. And yep. so they are admittedly the children he loves best. They're his favorites, yeah. Right. And so now he's only got one child left of Rachel, who's dead now, right? If I'm not mistaken, she passed in childbirth. So he's got Benjamin. He's the only remnant left of the love of his life in his mind. And now Joseph asking, is asking for, him back, asking for him. And so, of course, you know, Jacob's losing his mind with grief about that. <laughs> That's interesting. And we could keep talking about it. But right. I do want to get to this point on physics. Yes. Uh, because it, it struck me to read for myself. I knew it was in here, but I never actually read it fully <laughs> in context. But it struck me in chapter three of Genesis, whenever, uh, whenever God is talking to the serpent and then he's talking to the woman and then he says to the man, he has this whole great thing, but he ends it with, for you were made for, he, well, he says, by the sweat of your brow, will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made? For you were made from dust and to right. dust you will return, which is throw religion aside for a minute, suspend your belief, Right. If we only adhere to the scientific world as we understand it today, we know that is a literal truth. 
right. that we come from dust, stardust, and yep. that it is our ultimate fate. Right. When these bodies are gone and they, yeah, I mean, our sun, as we can, we know our sun is going to engulf the earth one day. Right. And these bodies we're in will be a part of that. And it's just right. going to be dust. Even now that actually fills me with some, like it fills me with a chill just thinking about how that's in this book right now. Right. And it's actually true. If, if I don't believe in God, if I'm not a Christian, it, it's one of the things that lends a tremendous amount of credibility to what I'm right. reading with right. just how spot on that ended up being. Right. There are a few different, um, there are a few different places in the Bible that illustrate some scientific knowledge or scientific understanding that predates the actual discovery of the knowledge. That's one of them. I think of another passage in the Old Testament. Don't tell me. But there's another one that talks about the earth being round. Okay. How would they have known, right? Okay. Um, how would they have known, right? Because everyone thought the earth was flat, you know? And yet there it is in the Bible. It so anyways. Feels, it feels, it fe and I admit that I say feel, but it feels much <laughs> more than just getting lucky with your words. Right. Well. So. Now I can play devil's advocate here, which is not really my role. Go ahead. But if I were to play the role of this, the cynical atheist, um, I would look and say, um, okay, maybe the guy who wrote this, you know, has, uh, has realized, you know, some years later or whatever, maybe the guy who wrote this just, you know, has seen a dead body decay over time and you walk into a tomb. This is most, many times people were buried in like catacombs or caves or whatever, mm -hmm. rather than underground. Yep because you can cover it up with a rock or whatever. Um, but, you know, if I walk into an old catacomb to bury the next relative, the guy from six generations ago is just a pile of dust over there. So maybe that's how I'm in thinking through that that's why it's dust. And from there, I created this narrative about dust. Um, I don't see it that way. I see it the way you saw it. You see it, which is like, you know, we're created from dust. And actually, I think if you... Well, I would, I would see it that way. I'd probably see it that way if it were anywhere else in the Bible, but it's in Genesis, uh, in the third chapter, right? It's in the Genesis, Genesis, which is about the, where we came from. Right. right. And so that's why it's so chilling because right. it's not about, it's not even about our bodies being born right. necessarily. It's about the essence of existence of all things. Right. Which speaks to the nature of God, right. To me, to me, right. You take a pile of dirt which is nothing and breathe life into it and create one of probably the most complex beings in all in the universe, right? If you think about the complexity of our human body and how it operates and the various functions and structures or whatever. So it, it illustrates who God is, the power that he has and his ability to in an instant create the most complex thing in the universe. Um, it's just kind of amazing when you ponder how, if, you know, if you're a Christian and you sit back and just ponder like how great God is and what he's capable of. Um, one of the sort of universal truths that as Christians, we believe is that like, as much as we will try to know everything about God and who he is, we can probably never truly grasp or understand the wholeness of who he is and what he can do. Um, and so there's just a lot that we probably won't ever really know until like, you know, we meet him in heaven. So anyways. There's, some, there's an interesting parallel there in that um, 
you know, if I think of scientists, <laughs> and I guess more like the scientist philosopher, um, because those tend to be the people who like will create YouTube channels. And, and I, I don't know a specific one to reference, but a general theme is that when it comes to science, there, there are people who are admitting that, you know, there's, there is, there, there are things that we will never probably understand about the universe, no matter how much science we develop. Right. Um, and we need to get comfortable with that. Right. Right. Um, but it doesn't mean we stop trying. Right. It's kind right. of the same thing that you just said, where we'll, we will never understand God. Yeah. But it doesn't mean we stop trying. Right. The difference is if you look at the Tower of Babel, right? Yes, um, get into that. Right. So the Tower of Babel, as I read it and sort of my understanding as a pseudo scholar, not a real one, but as an amateur Bible scholar, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm an amateur. Right. You're not. <laughs> um, so as I read the Tower of Babel story, it, what's happening there is less about advancement in technology. It's like God is not threatened by the fact that they can suddenly make bricks and build a tower, right? They're living in tents before. They have this new technology where they can make bricks. Ooh, yay. And they can build a tower. God's not threatened by that. But if you listen to the way they speak about it, right? It's let's build this up so we can get up to where God is. In other words, let's elevate ourselves up to where God is almost as a way of saying so that we don't, as in a way of illustrating that we don't really need God. You know, um, and that's the ultimate sin there in the Tower of Babel. Well, can I ask you then on that? Um, if we are God's children, mm -hmm. I'm not a father. I can only imagine what it's like to be a father. You are a father. But why wouldn't he want? Why, why would God not want them to reach up and be? To, to, to strive to reach up and be on God's level or even surpass it. Don't, wouldn't a father want their children to excel in every sense of the word? Yeah. So, so I, so viewing God as a father throughout the Bible is one of the best lenses through which to understand our relationship to him and his desire for what's best for us. Um, but there is only so far that you can really take that, right? So there is a point at which you have to like end the metaphor or the analogy, right? Um, and that is that we can't ever become God, right? So the Christian worldview is that we, I, as much as I, I will always, we should always strive to be like God, to exhibit his character and his love and his grace and his generosity and his holiness and his righteousness. Like there's so many different characteristics of God, that if we embrace those, and, and those characteristics, by the way, are where these universal truths stem from, right? Those truths stem from God's character. And so at least this is my view, the Christian view. Um, and so we, the degree to which we can embrace and try our best to live like he uh, and emulate him in those ways, um, we will be more successful, right? Um, but no matter how hard we try, we can't ever be God, right? He, he has um, awesome powers that we just don't have. So um, he's omniscient, you know, he knows everything. He's omnipotent. He has all the power to do everything. We just will never be able to achieve that. Well, then if we can't achieve it and it's always in vain if we reach for it, what's wrong with reaching for it? So because the, the difference is what you're reaching for. Are you reaching toward God to be more like him and to reflect his character, more loving, more graceful, um, you know, um, more, 
righteous, uh, if that's what you're reaching for, then yes, you should. But if you're reaching toward God to supplant him, be like, I don't need God. I don't need his laws. I don't need his truths because now I can be my own God. That's where the sin lies, right? That's where, that's the problem is when you supplant God. To, so if you're reaching toward him to be more like him, that is what you should do. But if you're reaching toward God so that you can say that I no longer need God and I can supplant him, in other words, this relationship he's been trying to repair for thousands of years, I don't need that relationship anymore. I, got, I can do my own thing. Then if you're trying to replace God with yourself, that's where the real sin lies. So you should be reaching toward him and trying your best to attain a likeness that is like him. But don't ever think, uh, this is the Christian worldview, don't ever think you don't need him, right? Or that he... Um, that, that you can go through life without him, if that makes sense. So we're always to some degree subordinate to him. And when we try to cast off that subordination, that's when our problems begin. Well, and, and thank you for that. Um, I, I do understand what you're saying. That's something that I guess I, I would just have to work on. Like that's something I'm, I would be really, I'm really uncomfortable accepting that. Right? Subordination is hard, right? <laughs> I, I, well, I am, you know, rugged individualist, right? right? I'm not to say there's no one I need. There are people in my life I absolutely need that I would be lost without. But, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, I would like to think that if I had to, I can go it alone, right? Like, um, or at least that I can achieve the, the projects and the goals that I want to achieve um, right. through my work and, and reaching out, creating relationships and, and yada, yada. So um, well, let me, let me into that. Let me also just throw one thing out there too. And that is, this is sort of another sort of universal truth is understood by the Christian worldview. And that is to say that um, all of humanity is always striving to draw closer to some sort of higher power, right? There's just something within us. We are, it's almost as though we were created to have some sort of relationship with a higher understanding or a higher power. As a Christian, I would say what that is, is your soul longing to connect with your creator, right? Mm -hmm. God. Um, and for the folks who tend to deny a creator and say, you know, God doesn't exist. And so of course that doesn't make any, you know, that's just crazy talk. You I know. still have the longing though. Right, they still have the longing. And so what they do though, is replace that um, sort of longing or they'd replace that that reaching out to a higher power to god with some other sort of moralistic con, you know conceit instead so that's where you find essentially you people have find as you've noted you have people replacing you know the state is their new god right they elevate the state to to replace god or or they 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 look at the earth is the new thing to be worshiped humans always look for something to worship, right? I they replace the earth as the thing to worship. And, you know, it, it'd be just, it'd be better off if humans were, you know, gone because then the earth would, could survive. And you're hitting was, on, you're hitting on another unspoken element. Maybe I just talked about it a little bit, but another unspoken element of why I want to understand this, because I see all of these new religions propping up that we don't call religions. Right. They're moralistic. It's all worship. Right. There, uh, so you're always there's always the it, it, what's funny is this new term virtue signaling right virtue signaling well virtue doesn't exist exist outside of some sort of structure right and in christianity our structure is the bible 
And so we live our lives to, to work toward uh, reflecting who God is to the rest of the world. If you don't have God, then you're constantly trying to reflect some other virtue to the world because you believe this way about masks or that way about masks or because you care about the earth and nobody else cares about the earth. And, and that it's because you have a longing to attach to or strive towards something bigger or greater than who you are. And if that's not God, then you find something else, you know? Anyways, and it's the pursuit of God that has impacted the world in a much greater way than any of these other pursuits. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. So uh, kind of moving on, there was another passage. The first few pages of Genesis had a lot of good stuff in it. <laughs> I know, right? I know. Um, like, like, I know I'll carry this line with me forever because it just, it hit, it was one of the ones that just hit me. Um, because even without God, I can, I can use it in my life. And it was this line where the Lord asked Cain, why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what's right. But if you refuse to do what is right, watch out. And this is a line. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you, but you Mm -hmm. must subdue it and be its master. Sin is, is, I mean, I can interpret sin to mean the distractions from what is right, the Mm -hmm. temptations that will take you in a wrong direction in your life, the temptations that might lead you down a path to be, you know, a betrayer of your family, of your friends, of your employers, of your values, right? Mm -hmm. It is, and it is, it's crouching at the door, eager to control you. Um, And if you don't subdue it, you live a life, uh, you live a life subordinate to it. Subordinate right. to sin. If you live your life constantly, um, constantly subordinated to your baser instincts, then your life will be the worse for it. Just plain and simple. And the degree to which, I mean, I mean that even, line is self-help as much as it is a right. religious. Uh, right. And there's a lot of that in the Bible, by the way. Like, oh, I'm sure. In in part of that, so as uh, the framework through which I view this as a Christian is that God is the ultimate. Um, indication of what is good and what is right, what is holy. Um, And so all of these universal truths come from him and they come from him because of who he is. They come, they, they sort of come from his character, as I said before. And so whenever we adhere to these universal truths, we are in, in effect adhering to trying to emulate God's character, whether we believe in God or not, if you are following what, what I think of as universal human truths, um, you're adhering and, tr- and following more closely to, you're aligning yourself with God's character, I guess is the way to say that. And, and sin is, is that which violates God's character, right? Sin, it's, sin is the things that turn us away from those universal truths. Um, and in biblical terms, sin essentially, because these truths are stem from who the in, who God inherently is, his nature, his character. Sin ultimately then separates us from him, right? That sin is the thing that creates this distance in our relationship with God. And ultimately the story of the Bible and Genesis is the story of God trying to mend that relationship, to bring us in alignment with who he is so that he can have a close relationship with us. Mm-hmm. And sin is the thing that throws up the roadblock and creates the obstacle. Um, fortunately, in our view, my view, um, God created the path to overcome that. 
to overcome the sin, move it out of the way um, so that then we could come back into relationship with him. And relationship, relationship means like true alignment with who God is and his character. So anyway, so much good stuff in there. There Genesis is a lot. Is chock full of great stuff. Um, there, honestly, there's a lot that I could talk about. We're at uh, an hour. Um, so I don't want to, uh, I don't want to keep going, but, um, I've appreciated you chatting with me. Do you have any final thoughts or any questions for me as I'm reading it? Uh, so just a couple of notes, I will say it has been really fun for me to hear you read the Bible. Um, as someone who has sort of frankly marinated in the Bible my whole life, not that, like I say, I'm a, as deep a biblical scholar as some folks I know, but the, I, I grew up, I mean, I, I was in church the first Sunday after I was born, right? And I have been in church virtually every Sunday since then and lots of days that are not Sunday. I've lived my life in church, about church, constantly hearing God's word, constantly hearing it read and preached and talked and expounded on. We've lived very different lives. <laughs> right? Yes, yes, we have. But this is what's so striking. And one reason I love, I've really enjoyed listening to your podcast is because it is so cool to see someone uh, experience for the first time something that I have just marinated in my whole life. I can, it's almost like, it's almost like the, the super uber Star Wars fan who finally lets their kid watch Star Wars for the first time. And the best <laughs> part about that is watching them react to it because you know all, you, you know this, you've seen it, you're whatever, but looking and watching them react to it. And that's what it's almost like. I'm watching somebody react to something that I've known and it, frankly taken for granted my whole life and you're experiencing it for the first time. And it's just really cool to watch. I will also note that as much as you give yourself a hard time about the pronunciations, just know that virtually nobody gets those right for the most part. Um, so I, I have, a, I mean, I have, I know a couple of like Hebrew scholars who probably could tell you the proper way, but like 99.9%. I probably don't possess the vocal muscles to pronounce them correctly. <laughs> right. Right. And, and some of the times, sometimes you'll pronounce a word, um, and you'll, or a name, and you'll pronounce it in a way that I'm like, oh, actually, so that's not how I've always heard it, but I think that maybe sounds better. And what do I oh, know? Sometimes I, I just switch it every time I read the word. <laughs> right. and, and I hope yeah, I get close. I get close with one of them. Yeah. So um, I, think, I think you're doing it. You're, you're doing it yourself a service and hopefully anybody else who's interested in learning from the Bible. Obviously, as a Christian, I, I hope everybody eventually comes to Christ. Um, but regardless of whether you do that or not, just learning the truths of the Bible will benefit you if, for, if nothing else. And I think that the book of Genesis itself is God's establishing how we got here and where things went wrong and how he has created a plan for us. All along the way in Genesis, you note that God had a plan, he has instruction, and he's trying to, he's trying to help us reconcile that relationship all throughout Genesis and throughout the whole Bible. Yeah. And there's, I mean, even just flipping through the pages, there's so much more I would actually want to talk about. Um, and so I, we're just going to leave it at that because I don't want to take up a whole bunch of time. Um, but I do really want to thank you for jumping on uh, and talking about this with me openly. Um, I want to set an example that two people who, you know, disagree on some fundamental things can find common ground and have a deep intellectual conversation and 
wish each other well at the end of it, right? Right, right. Um, there's very little of that, uh, at least. I'm going to correct what I said. I retract saying there's very little of that. I think there's a lot more of that than any of us would know. Right. It's just not on the internet. Right, so. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So in putting this on the internet, I would like to be one little, um, one little ray of light Right. And in what is otherwise an uh, uh, intellectually dark place and getting darker by the day. Um, so thank you very much, CJ. I'll certainly chat with you a lot more as time goes on. And I thank you for uh, listening and being supportive. Um, and that's about it. All right. Thanks. I appreciate it. I look forward to it. Have a good weekend. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Hey. Please excuse this brief intermission while we transition you into the second half of our discussion on Genesis. Essentially, when I got completed with our, uh, well, when we completed our conversation uh, on Genesis, I wasn't satisfied. I felt like we really needed to cover more. I still had some questions and things I wanted to talk about. So I texted CJ, asked him if he would come back um, the next day and wanted to I was thinking about, you know, should I make it a completely separate episode or not? And I'm just going to put it all together as one. So we're going to go ahead with that. Thanks. Um, so welcome back to It's Lit with Mitch. I'm Mitch Broderick. And yesterday we had CJ Collins join us. Um, and I haven't determined if I'm going to blend the episodes together or not yet, but we'll figure that out. Um, sure. But after our conversation yesterday, I just realized that there, there was still a lot more I wanted to talk about in Genesis before I moved on. And I didn't feel like I was done. So I texted CJ and asked him if he might give me another, give me another uh, you know, 30, 45 minutes of his time to dive in. And thankfully, CJ was available this Sunday morning. So um, I wanted to, uh, I appreciate you coming back. Um, I wanted to, just first, there's some notes that I have, CJ, but first I wanted to ask if there's anything in Genesis that we didn't talk about that you think is actually vital to the lessons or the wisdom of the book of Genesis. Um, I think that, I think we covered, we covered the broad strokes that I wanted to cover. There were lots of, there's lots of really great stories that could be explored. Abraham, you know, almost sacrificing Isaac, Abraham and Ishmael. There's just, there's a lot of great stories. I also want to talk about what it means when they put their hand on their thigh, um, because that's actually um, a euphemism. Uh, so, but that's not really germane to the overall topic of the book. But anyways, I just thought, I think it's kind of interesting. I do want to know that because <laughs> I, I have wondered that myself. Yeah, you'll love it when I tell you. Uh, or, or maybe not, I don't know. But um, anyways, so, but the overall the themes of the book I think I outlined um, yesterday, which were that essentially it's God establishing a relationship, the relationship is broken, and then he sets up in Genesis um, this ongoing effort to establish the relationship, which you'll see carried out throughout the entire Bible. So um, the other thing that I would say, though, to add to that is that uh, Gen the, you know, the term Genesis means beginning, right? And so that, that's an aptly termed name for this book because it also is... Also one of the best prog rock groups of all time. I mean, there is that too, right? Um, agree, agree. Uh, and and our, how, 
who could argue, frankly. Um, but um, but um, Genesis essentially sets up the origin story, right? So in a couple of origin stories. One, the origin story of Earth and existence. Uh, but then subsequent to that, in a few chapters later, chapter 10 or 11-ish, um, we start seeing the origin story surrounding Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham, which we still uh, enjoy the fruits of today, right? Christianity, as Christians, we think of um, the church, not the building, but like the church. Right. And Christians as this sort of like culmination of God's covenant with Abraham. And Jesus is, uh, as Jesus says, the sort of fulfillment of that covenant. So, so anyways, that's the origin story that gets set up um, in Genesis. And so you really have to get where it's coming from before you can understand the whole rest of the book, you know? Um, it's also the cliffhanger at the end of Genesis. The cliffhanger is maybe an overstatement, but essentially Genesis leaves it so that we all now, everyone understands um, how the Israelites got to Egypt, right? Because yeah. what happens after that is something that, I mean, let's face it, they still commemorate to this day, right? You know, they don't have like uh, creation day or whatever, they, they, but they do still celebrate the Passover um, and all of that. So in order to, in order for that to have significance, you have to understand how they got there in the first place. So anyway, and that's Genesis, Genesis sets it up nicely. And then it's picked up. And said, what you just said, actually, it's something that I knew, but I didn't put it together. So simply that Genesis was the story of how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. Right. Now I, I, I realized that's what I read um, specifically in the last, uh, I guess, 10 10 or 15 chapters of Genesis. Right. Because um, otherwise, I mean, actually, I thank you. That, that right. just helped my understanding of all of that much more. Because you, you get, it's not an easy book to read, actually. <laughs> right? Uh, no. <laughs> so, like, you, you miss details. I'm sure, obviously, I'm going to have to read it again um, one of these days. Maybe that'll be another podcast a second time through. But anyway. Um, well, excellent. Thank you. So where I wanted to start today, because we didn't really cover it all, cover it at all yesterday, um, is on Noah and the flood. Um, oh, but, yeah. So Noah is, as I understand it, Noah is essentially, so God creates this world and Adam and Eve, and they are uh, being fruitful and multiplying, right? Mm -hmm. um, but this is a different world than the world we know right now. It's not a different planet, but it's a different world, a different existence. Humans right. are different. Humans are living 800 to 900 years old, supposedly. Right. And again, I'm suspending my disbelief to, you know, engage right. in faith. Right. In these if you take the pages literally, that's what you read, right? right? Well, eventually things are just so bad that the Lord, it, hold on. I just want to make sure I get this all chronologically correct. The flood happens before Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. All right. Cool. Um, that's okay. Great. The flood so, is pretty much a few generations after Adam and Eve, frankly. Right. Yeah. So I want to know as a practicing Christian, what the flood means to you, because I know, I, you know, I know that the flood is obvious. It's only a few paragraphs, honestly, right. It's a couple pages, right. the, whole, the whole account of it. But the lore is so gigantic in our society, you know, when years and years ago, 
um, when my youngest, uh, my first nephew was being born, they lived in the house with me. And I remember like, it was all about getting, you know, people, there were so many baby things being sold with Noah's Ark right. uh, image, imagery, right? right. And so, like, it's just gigantic with lore. And I want to know what, what does it mean to a Christian? How do you interpret it? What meaning does it bring to your life? Um, yeah, that's a great question. So uh, how am I supposed to understand it? Um, well, if you listen to the episode, I'll just offer this before you answer. If you listen to the episode where I'm talking about it, one of the things I, I'm not a giant video gamer, but there is a game I play called Civilization. Right. Um, and a game I play called City Skylines. Both are like long-term strategy building games. Like world building, right? World building. And I have many a time gotten hundred turns in or an hour or so in and said, Oh, I screwed this all up. Right. We're going to start all over. Right. And it, when I was reading it, I kind of felt like maybe that's what's happening here, um, which lends itself more to the simulation stuff. But I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm like that. It just, I'm like, man, God and I, we're not so different. You and I. Right. 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 It's almost as though you were created in his image, right? That we I know there's some characteristics. Crazy. huh? <laughs> um, so, um, okay. So the significance of the Noah story to me as a, as a Christian, and there's a couple of takeaways. First of all, the imagery, the imagery is really powerful, especially for children because the animals involved, right? Let's face it. It's that image of the boat with all the animals hanging off of it. That is yeah. so powerful for kids. Um, but the story itself is a story of, um, yeah, God's plan having gone awry, you know, and, and I should say many, many, many major cultures have featured in history, have featured some sort of flood story, right? Right. I do know which, that. Which people use to uh, discount the historicity of Noah. But I used to say like, well, maybe if like everybody's talking about it, it might've kind of happened. I mean, I'm just saying, you know, like if, if it seems like everybody has talked about it, maybe it sort of happened. I mean, I don't well, know. Well, there, there is reason to believe just from the study of like Earth's climate in the past, there right. is reason to believe that monstrous floods have happened right. as ice ages have ended. And I think that there is some um, geological evidence if you look at, you know, fossil layers and whatever that like something catastrophic happened. I, I'm not a scientist, so I, not a I, geologist, I'm, but... I'm certainly willing to believe that a massive flood has happened before. I don't know if it covered every mountaintop on the planet. Right. But, you know, the, the, the lore, the legends, the beliefs and systems we create are based on, I believe that what human societies have built is largely based on things that have happened. Right. So that being said, um, the the story of Noah again is is it's a story of like I say God's um, plan God's creation go, going awry. He established humanity for a relationship with Him, and um, if you look at the, the in the in Adam in, in the garden, God walked every day with Adam and Eve. Like they they had a relationship. He came, he visited, they talked, they were you know they hung out you know. Um, and then that went awry after the fall and then continued to spiral, right, out of control till the days of Noah. And you're right, God, I mean, I think I take God literally in the Bible when he said, uh, I just, sketch. I, you know what, I'm going to wipe the whole thing clean. I'm going to undo the whole thing. Um, and then, but he finds that Noah is still righteous, that Noah has maintained his relationship with the Lord. And because of Noah, 
humanity is saved. And that's kind of an underlying theme, right? That, um, which I, I take solace in today, which is that if we can be one surrounded- righteous by, man left, right? If yeah, you, you can be surrounded left. by, you know, evil or, or just depressing circumstances or things that frankly are um, opposite of what you believe and what you know to be true, you, you know, it's almost as though, like I look at today's world and it seems like, I think there's, there is a right and a wrong and, and it should be obvious to everyone, but everyone has blinded themselves to what's right and instead is turning in what I think is the wrong direction uh, and pretending like wrong is right and up is down and left is right and it's all crazy, you know? And, but what I take solace in is that if there's someone left that still has a relationship with God and seeks to know him, that there's still salvation in that. Noah, I think, is sort of one of the uh, one of the salvation stories, frankly, that occur throughout the Bible, and and you'll find that there's a lot of those, right? So it's one of the salvation stories, right? Noah is saved um, because of his established relationship with the Lord, and suddenly now the the etch a sketch is shaken, and it's just him and his wife and his kids and their wives, right? But if you look, I mean, that's not the only time. And all the uh, small animals that scurry along the ground. Right, right. We don't want to have to recreate all those, right? So let's go ahead and bring them in the boat. And then, uh, and then uh, uh, which I think is, can you imagine being trapped in a boat, no matter how big, with all of those animals? And then, like, where they, it's just got to be gross. Anyways, you can see why they wanted to get off the boat. Um, but if you look at, look at, um, look at, we could get to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm sure we could talk about that too, but you know, well, we're going, we're going to that's next, but there's your other salvation story, right? Like, Hey, wait, a, you know, there's still one, what if there's still a few people left in there? Right. So well, it's so like my, God, pre, God preserves, God preserves the people with whom he has a relationship. And uh, over time, that's a model that you see replayed throughout the Bible. It happens over and over again. Uh, Israel, yeah, we won't get into the book of Exodus, but it, it happens over and over again. Just leave it at that. Okay, so moving on to Sodom and Gomorrah, because I did want to talk about that. Um, my, so my biggest question on Sodom and Gomorrah is, gosh, okay, so we're getting into it, right? Right. Uh, basically, Abraham says to God, will you, because God, <laughs> God's like, I'm taking this down. I'm fed up. There's, there's, you know, this place is outrageous. And the, uh, Abraham says to the Lord and says, will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? And then proceeds for, you know, uh, this dialogue between the two where it appears as though Abraham is actually like reasoning and pleading a case like, right. like in court with with right. God himself, where, where he's like, suppose you find 50 righteous people living in this whole city, just 50. Will you right. sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? It's a great passage. And then the Lord says, if I find 50 people, I will spare the entire city. Mm -hmm. And so then Abraham continues down the path of reasoning. And he says, how about 40? And he says, if I find 40, no. And he says, how about 30? How he about keeps losing. He keeps losing his negotiation and having to Yeah, no, and it, it looks like God's a poor negotiator, right? It's, it's honestly, it reminds me of, uh, well, you've been married for a long time. Um, 
longer than I have been married, but it reminds me of almost like an agreement where, or a, a, a situation with your spouse, when your spouse says something outrageous and they know it's outrageous at the time they say it, right. but then you catch it and you get to go through this dialogue back and forth with the spouse of getting them to slowly admit how outrageous the thing they said right. was, right? right? One of the funnest parts of marriage. Well, eventually it gets down to even one, right? Well, mm -hmm. it's the implication, the dialogue itself isn't there. It ends at 10, but it gets down to one, right? Or one family right? where God's not, God will spare the whole city if he finds one righteous man, um, which then obviously proceeds to happen, which was pretty strange. But I'm just, I guess my question is with, with that negotiation that happens, and then I'm pairing that with Abraham deceiving Abimelech, um, and, Abimelech and then God is going to basically smite Abimelech. Do I pronounce that right? Is that how you... You know, you're, I've always heard it pronounced Abimelech, but I'm not. Abim, I know I'm not a, a Hebrew scholar, and most of the people I've heard pronounce it are not either. So your pronunciation is probably as good Abim. as anybody's. Well, Abim, 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 whatever. Um, that was probably really offensive. Whatever I just did to someone. No. Um, well, so Abimelech also. Um, you know, has this negotiation with God when God is going to kind of smite him uh, about Abraham saying that his wife is actually his sister when, mm -hmm. when he was deceived, you know, he just didn't know. And I guess my question is why, why do these negotiations have to happen with God? Why would we have to even reason with him if he is omnipotent and, uh, you know, and, and all knowing why isn't he just inherently just and reasonable? So he, he is inherently just and reasonable, um, but he loves us anyway. I mean, that's sort of the gist of it in my mind. If you think about, I mean, I have kids, right? And I know what's best for my kids. And if, it, if I were strictly to do what were best for my kids all the time, they would never have candy ever. And yet <laughs> we have plenty of candy around the house. And my kids will straight up negotiate to have some candy. And um, uh, they start big. I mean, they're, they're board salespeople. They start big and work their way down. Um, and so, uh, and we negotiate. And then eventually I let them have some candy, right? So, and it's because I love them, you know? And sure, maybe I should like have them eat kale and the cucumbers or something instead, but I let them have some candy. Um, and I think that ultimately, this, this ability, it, it, it illustrates to me that this is a relationship. And I, I keep using that word over and over, but I just think it's true. Um, it illustrates to me that it's a relationship because isn't that what you do in relationships? Really? It, isn't every relationship some give and take? Um, and in this, in this particular relationship, our relationship to God, we're, we're obviously subordinate to him in, in the view of Christianity. And so but, but there's still some give and take, right? Because in addition to being entirely holy, meaning uh, we don't deserve the relationship with him. It's basically, you know, we're dating out of our league, I guess, if you, you know, saying it that way. I mean, we're like, we don't deserve this relationship, but somehow he has deigned to have a relationship with us. And so here we are. Um, and so 
um, he allows us to have some negotiation, I suppose, you know, it's almost like, and here's the other thing here. In my mind, what we're striking on here is an ongoing debate with this within the Christian world, right? So there's this ongoing, like for a thousand years, uh, theological debate among Christians, right? Um, doesn't get played out much in the news or whatever, but Christians have a, a major debate within ourselves between um, essentially um, Calvinism, which is sort of a predestinationist philosophy of Christianity versus Arminianism. I don't want to get too in, deep in the weeds, but one Calvinism says like, look, God is entirely omnipotent. And because of that, everything is preordained, predestined, right? The people who are going to go to heaven, that's already been predestined, you know, and the people who are not going to go to heaven, it's already been decided. Um, and everything's already been preordained. And some people take it to its extreme, like, you know, whatever socks you were going to wear has already been decided. God already decided that. Well, that's sort of like, why do you look both ways crossing the street then? Yeah, yeah. Well, and yeah, I, I do not fall. I'm just full disclosure. I yeah. love a lot of folks who are Calvinists and I love them dearly. <laughs> I, I um, who, who ascribe to that, but I am, I am decidedly not of that bent. I fall within the sort of Armenian um, discussion, which is to say that God loves us and he gives us free will and we are allowed to decide. He presents us with the opportunity to have a relationship with him and we get to decide if we wanna do that or not. And so, and I just think that that is a much more powerful tie to him, right? If, if my relationship with him is by choice, then that is a much stronger relationship than if I were sort of, if I didn't have a choice, right? And so this negotiation to me shows that he has, he has this plan or this thought or this idea. And because of our free will, we can decide to engage with him and discuss with him, it also to me shows that he is willing to use or leverage his resources, which are infinite on our behalf, right? So as a Christian, that means a lot to me, right? That, hey, maybe the plan is for all of this other stuff to happen, but I would really love this other thing. And I can pray and seek this, seek God with whom I have a relationship and sort of beseech him to use or leverage his resources on my behalf. I wouldn't go so far as to make that like a name it and claim it, you know, if you want that Cadillac, pray for it and he'll give it to you kind of thing. Um, but you can pray for him to move or act on your behalf, right? And that's a fundamental tenet of Christianity is that, that God is not like the watchmaker who created the watch and then walked away. Like he is still active in our lives. I mean, so that's really comforting to me as a Christian, that God's active in our lives, that when I need him, I can call on him. I can give personal examples of 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 answered prayer, you know, like in my mind, miracles, you know, where um, my fate had been decided, but prayer changed that, you know, anyways. And I think this is just the beginnings. It's sort of an illustration of, of that happening. Like God, things were moving in the direction and basically Abraham prayed and God said, okay, well, we'll do what you want. So in one sense, a part of the negotiation or the reason for the negotiation is that it's something that God actually wants from uh, the individuals uh, with whom he's interacting. He actually, it's almost like he sets us up to see how much we're learning and growing. Will we stand up for ourselves and will we stand up for other people who may yeah. be righteous? Yeah, I think that God wants us to ask, uh, 
on a daily basis, I think God wants, first of all, God just wants, God wants to talk to us. God wants to hear from you. And if it cares, if you care about it, if it's a concern of yours, he wants to hear about it. And he wants to help move and act on your behalf. Doesn't mean you always get what you want, right? Of course. But, but he wants to move and act on your behalf, you know, and Abraham's trying to save his nephew, right? He's trying to save Lot and his family. Um, so anyway. All right. So now tell me about uh, Abraham and Isaac uh, with, with regard to take your son Isaac and go to the land of Moriah, you know, Isaac, whom you love so much, go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you, um, which just stunned me. Like I reread right. the passage a couple, you know, a couple times and um, obviously it ends up not happening. Right. Yeah. Right. So keep in mind walk me through this and walk me how to interpret that, because like I'm, I'm a little I'm a little stunned. Right. So keep in mind, um, this is a, a, one of those crazy passages that you read and you're just thinking, I'm confused about this. It, it, is, it is a confusing passage because it is notable that God throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, they, they talk about this, that one of the things that God finds ultimately detestable is human sacrifice, especially child sacrifice. There's an ancient God called Molech to whom people, that was one of the ritual things that his followers would do would, would be baby sacrifice. And it was, it's just detestable in God's eyes. And, and, and so when you read this passage, knowing that context and, and you see that context play out later uh, and you hear about Molech and, and it's not just Molech, but just God, God detests human sacrifice. He detests baby sacrifice, especially the sacrifice of the innocent. Um, like, the shedding of innocent blood is another overall theme, especially throughout the Old Testament, um, and that God really detests. So why would he ask Abraham to do this? Uh, sacrifice his own son. And really, frankly, um, if we recall God made this giant covenant with Abraham that said, right. hey, you're going to have uh, you're going to be the father of many nations. Right. You will be the father of, you know, tons of people and, you know, um, through your descendants, the world will be blessed, right? And the only legitimate offspring of that covenant is Isaac. And Ishmael, the whole, the whole relationship between him and Hagar and Ishmael is also an interesting thing to explore as a side note. But, um, but so Isaac is representative of everything in, that matters in the world to Abraham. And it is in Isaac is representative of his entire covenant promise from God, right? And so to sacrifice that is to say essentially that, gosh, if I sacrifice this, that means essentially that I still trust that God will bring his word to pass, that the promise that God made will still come true, even though I don't understand how, right? And, um, it's interesting as they walk, you know, as they're walking toward the sacrifice and Isaac says, hey, dad, where's the, where's the lamb? We're supposed to have something or something we're supposed to be sacrificing here. What, where is it? And Abraham's response is, well, God will provide the lamb, right? And, and I, here's how I read that as, as a non-Hebrew person. Like I, I didn't read this in the original Hebrew or anything. So I'm just reading it as I see it. And the way I read that is Abraham saying, you know, essentially God provided Isaac. I know that God can provide and I don't know what's next, 
but I know that whatever is next that God provides, I take comfort that in that as a Christian, right? That throughout life and life has a lot of uncertainty. And I, and sometimes I know what I want to happen to other times. I have no freaking idea what should happen next, but I know that if I trust God, that he provides somehow, somewhere, God provides a next step or resources or a next direction or whatever. So that's how I read that. And ultimately we know that, you know, Isaac ends up not being sacrificed. The other thing about this is that, um, remember God's playing the long game here, right? He knows God has the plan for our ultimate salvation that we see culminating in Christ's ultimate sacrifice, right? Where God really did sacrifice his real son, you know, Jesus. Um, and that sacrifice of Jesus. Don't give me spoiler alert. Don't give me spoilers. I'm not there yet. You've heard what? of Jesus before. What the hell's happening? <laughs> but, but this is one of many, 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 many. I'm not that guy yet. <laughs> this is one of many, many, many examples of essentially foreshadowing of this idea of sacrificing the most valuable thing for ultimate salvation. Um, and this is one of those you'll see you'll see that if you have the, the picture of Christ being sacrificed for our salvation in the back of your mind, as all Christians do as they read the Bible, then you see that illustration over and over throughout as you read. And this is one of the instances where that happens. Um, so yeah, it seems out of character for God to ask for child sacrifice because it is. And ultimately we know that of course the child didn't get sacrificed, which is so God didn't really violate his character, but he was asking Abraham and what Abraham demonstrated was that he trusted God, that God would still provide um, and that he trusted that the covenant God made would still happen, right? If he had not, if he hadn't trusted God, he would have said, yeah, I'm not doing that, you know, <laughs> because if I, if I do that, then, uh, then the covenant won't come true. So it's, it's way, it's how Abraham demonstrated his trust in God and God provided a lamb. Okay. Excellent. Um, well, moving on, uh, I really only have a, a few other distinct passages I wanted to discuss. Um, one of them is in chapters 28 and 29 of Genesis, um, which, it's, which is essentially, first, I get uh, the dream of Jacob, where I just thought it was interesting, where it says, as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven, which is, now I can, now I've read for myself where the stairway to heaven imagery comes yeah. from, right? Yep, yep. Um, secondly, at the end of that uh, chapter 28, at the end of that, Jacob says, uh, and he sets up this memorial pillar, which mm -hmm. becomes a place for worshiping God. And he says, and I will present to God a 10th of everything he gives me, yeah. um, which introduces tithing for the first time in the book. Right. Um, and well, actually, and actually tithing did get introduced a bit earlier. Really? As well. So there was a time. I might've missed it. I mean, it's so, you tell me, but they, so Abraham um, taught, had met uh, Melchizedek, the priest of God. Um, his kids. Melchizedek. Well, okay. I've heard her pronounce Melchizedek, Melchizedek, but. Oh, okay. Well, whatever. So either way, but he meets uh, Melchizedek and, and, and that is where we see Abraham give to God as well. So in the 
tr- church tradition, we sort of see that as the establishing of tithing there. And then we, what we see Jacob do uh, is sort of following through on that, on the example that he's seen from his grandfather and father. Does that make sense? The 10% Where I think does, probably comes from your passage who, though. Who does, who does the 10th when Jacob is giving that 10th, he says, I'll present to God a 10th of everything he gives me. To whom is he giving that? Because okay. Now, so. I understand tithing. Now you go to your church, they pass the basket around. Right. Uh, but the, I mean, it's my understanding he's not congregating every month or every week with people, right? So who is he giving it or how is he applying that tenth? Do you right. Know? So it, it is likely that he, so depend, he probably does get together with his family and have essentially ritual sacrifice is my, no, I'm not a historian, so I just, but that's my thought. My guess is that, is that he's having some ritual sacrifice, right? If you recall in the Old Testament, you know, and in Genesis, when, when people screw up, they offer sacrifices to atone for, that, for their sin, right? And so um, my guess is that he's giving his possessions as ritual sacrifice to some degree. So take, imagine taking a tenth of his sheep or herds or whatever and offering that as a sacrifice to the Lord. Um, so he'd be trying- killing it. So would he then be feasting or you know eating those? That I don't know. I, I'm not sure. It, when you get into the book of Exodus and Leviticus, which I won't, <laughs> I okay. won't give you any spoilers, but when you get into the book of Exodus, Leviticus, which Exodus is a cool story. Leviticus is hard to read. So I'm told muscle, that I'm just I'm told we're gonna through. Have to power through it. Some of the laws are pretty interesting to talk about, but, um, but it's a tough read um, anyway. But when you get into those, you can see how the establishment of the norms of sacrifice and like more, it become more formalized as to that process. And then there does become there out of that. Eventually, there turns into the sort of priestly class um, that have to be supported by the tithe. Um, and but that happens a bit later. And here, I, like I say, I think what's happening is he's giving it to the Lord via sacrifice. Um, but that could, you know. If you found a Hebrew historian, he may actually have some other thoughts on that. But that's that's what I'm guessing has happened because there is no organized temple. There's no tabernacle. There's not a synagogue. You know, it's them worshiping God as a family, as a very, very large family, but still as a family. Okay, Um, and then I guess another uh, interesting thing I wanted to talk about that I did spend some time in the episode talking about, but. I hear, I got to find out who it is. Now, do you pronounce it Laban or Laban? You know what? I've always called it Laban, but okay. when you said Laban, I was like, you know what? I like that better maybe because, and like I say, everyone I've ever heard pronounce it is not a Hebrew scholar. So they don't know how to pronounce it either. Well, no, that's fine. I just didn't know. I, I said it many different ways just to right. try and cover them all. <laughs> I've always um, gone by Laban is what I've always said, what we, I've always heard. But in uh, chapter 31, Jacob's treaty uh, with Laban. Um, Which, what a tricky guy, by the way, Laban. Kind of a jerk, just saying. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. Shiesty. Talk about, talk about some, crappy in-laws. Some shiesty saying. stuff going on there. <laughs> Um, but he says, if you mistreat my daughters or if you marry other wives, this is the passage I, I marked down. God will see it even if no one else does. Yep. Um, which is the first time that I, I, I think that's the first time anything like that has appeared 
is that God will see it even if no one else does. And the reason that I highlighted that is because I find that, again, as an atheist, if I'm just thinking about how you have millions of men cooperate with one another. Yeah. Like God will see it even if no one else does is this abstract concept that I guess it helps to affirm some way that we can trust one another. Right. That right. we are all coming from, from the same place, the same belief in, in a transcendence mm-hmm. that sees whether or not we are acting virtuously, whether or not we are keeping our words, even if no one else is looking, because that's, that's ultimately the measure of a man, right? Right. What do you do when no one else is looking? Right. Well, when no other humans are looking, at least God is right. Right. And so it's a helpful way to organize society, you know, pardon. it's a helpful way to organize society. Well, not only helpful, but it was, it's, it's necessary. So like, as an right. atheist, I don't think we would have society um, without religion, without this, without it, the other ones, obviously other places in the world have society, but I don't think we would have organized society without them. Right. I think they were absolutely necessary. Um, and the alternatives that this gets a little more political and whatnot, but the alternatives to these religions are some much more dangerous and scary religions that are propping up. So, right. yeah, I think that, um, I, I think you're right. I, think I would rather God see it if no one else does than government sees it if no one else does. Right. If you catch well, my drift. Well, yeah. The, the, the more we remove God from our life and society, the more other things take his place and, and it's attempt poorly to serve his function. Right. And that is, Um, You know, we have an omniscient, omnipotent God. When you remove him, what happens is he gets replaced with an omniscient, omnipotent, in our mind, government, right? Which isn't actually omniscient. It isn't because, let's say, they screw up everything they touch and is not actually, right? Um, And not omnipotent, right? There's only so much the government can actually do. And, And as a society retreats from moral standards, right? And in our case, established by the Judeo-Christian ethic and heritage, as we retreat from those standards, it's we can we can try to replace that with laws that are passed, and then inevitably, though, people still do still do whatever they want when people when that law is not watching, right? Um, because the the government really can't be everywhere at one time. So essentially, as as God retreats or as we have God retreat. Uh, he doesn't really retreat. But as we as we turn away from God, we actually turn toward lawlessness, no matter how many extra laws we try to create. Um, because of the sentiment that you mentioned, you know, with with God in the picture, there is always somebody watching. There's always a higher power that we answer to, that we answer to not just for what is seen publicly. Let's face it, you're only going to get uh, arrested or thrown in jail for the stuff you're caught doing. But if God's in the picture, it doesn't matter whether you're caught or not. He just knows, right? And that um, provides for the framework for to, that creates a moral society wherein we continue to do the good thing, the right thing, or at least try, even if the government can't punish us for not doing it. Um, and as we turn away from that, I think we're seeing, in my opinion, the degradation of our society because of that. So anyway. Okay. The last thing that I specifically wanted to talk about is right at the end of Genesis, 
when Joseph is reassuring his brothers, because his brothers are so afraid that now that their father is gone, that mm -hmm. Joseph is going to seek vengeance against them now. Right. right. Um, and so they, you know, basically <laughs> they craft this deception up, first of all, saying that before dad died, right. right. He right. told us, <laughs> he told us to tell you to forgive us, right. For everything that we did to you. Right. Um, and this whole family, this whole family are nothing but liars, right. They, they constantly lie to each other. Yeah. Abraham lies, Isaac lies about his wife. Then you get Jacob, who's who was came out of the womb a trickster, essentially um, yep. tricks his brother. The whole thing, right? And then now, now it continues down another whole generation. They're all just lying to each other. But nonetheless, Joseph replies to them, "Don't." I mean, he he wept, right? But he he replies to them, "Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you?" Right. Uh, which certainly obviously alludes to the only real justice it, it alludes to i can't judge you right right i it's not my place it's not my interest um you intended to do me harm he continues but god intended it all for good um and again it's just am i god that i can punish you it really comes to the heart of forgiveness i guess and and i think it might be the first place where it comes to the heart of forgiveness of people who may have wronged you before. Um, because for Joseph, whatever anybody did to him in his life to wrong him, it all turned out. If I, if I turn the pages back, you know, 20 pages, right. Everything has worked out for Joseph because his ontology was correct. As I interpret his, his ontology made all the difference, the way he approaches right. life, right. The way the Bible calls that is God was with him. And that's why he continued to succeed. I think those things are one and the same. Right. Um, how I interpret it and how the Bible says it. Um, and at the end of the day, he says, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? And yeah. it's such a, I mean, that I found that to be powerful because there, that's a really big act of forgiveness on his part. Right. Because you know he would be justified in wanting vengeance. Right. right. And you know what, when the church messes up, because we do, this is one of the main ways we do it is we screw this part up and think, look, I know what the rules are. I know what the Bible says. And I can tell you, you're not following those rules, which may very well be true. Um, but our job is not to punish the world, right? Our job is not to constantly punish those around us who don't follow the tenets of Christianity. Our job is to reflect Christ and let God do the work, right? Let God do the change. Let God change people's hearts and lives and minds. So, um, you know, when the church screws up, this is one of the main ways they do it, right? Is their thought is that, well, look, uh, I know what the Bible says and I know what we're supposed to do and what we're not supposed to do. I know what the rules are, quote unquote. Um, and then, and, and so I'm gonna make sure everybody knows that they're breaking the rules and that they're all going straight to hell uh, who hasn't heard the, the street corner preachers, you know, say that. Um, and I'm just going to let everybody know that they're punishing, they're going to get punished and whatever. And, and guess what? I believe in an ultimate judgment. I really do. But my job is not to, um, my job is not to begin the punishment here, right? My job is to illustrate who Christ is, who God is one and the same for me. Illustrate who God is by the way I act and the way I behave, the way I love, the way I, uh, embrace others 
and then have God do the conviction of them and have God create the change. And ultimately you see that in, in, in the, Joseph's relationship with his brothers, you know, that he, he did act in forgiveness because he knew that uh, he wasn't, he, know, he, he knows he's not God. I mean, this is other, also Joseph admitting, I'm not God, right? Which is the other fundamental way that humanity screws up is we try to take God's place, right? And do, his, and do God's job. And Joseph says that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not God. And, and because of that, his relationship with his brothers is reconciled, right? The good comes out of it when we remember who we are and what our real role is. Um, and so, yeah, this is, I, I think it's a powerful message that the church needs to be reminded of frequently, um, but that, that most, most Christians actually really embrace that. Well, hey, it, it, I, I don't, I just really difficult. God and like, let him, let him help others. And I'll just be here to point the way, point toward God, you know? It seems to be really difficult if I'm, it is very difficult. I mean, even now I have, uh, as a result of like the past 10 to 12 months, I have a tremendous amount of righteous indignation and anger um, at some people. And I won't get into it, but if I were, if I were, and I'm kind of just, I'm really like thinking about this for the first time based on what we just talked about, trying to apply it to this passage here. Mm -hmm. So, but if, if, if I'm being asked to willingly forgive these people for what they've done to, to, you know, so many to wrong, so many hardworking, good people, because they think they were doing the right thing, right? right? All along. I mean, that's really difficult. That's a very big challenge that I don't know I'm capable of at this time. Right. Forgiveness is hard. <laughs> it just well, is. I've, I always felt that, I mean, I've always felt that forgiveness is an action. It's never a feeling. It's never something that no. you wait to feel like it's time nope. to forgive. It's nope, always, you're right. you have to decide. Yeah, uh, it totally is. And But here's the thing too, is that, because uh, I'm, I'm with you, right? I, I, I get what you're saying. It is hard to forgive people who, if you feel like you have been wronged and, and you're speaking at sort of a, a more of a cultural macro level. So Correct. take that down and, but the same applies, right? If, um, here, here's the thing, um, light overcomes darkness. The darkness can never overcome light, right? And in my mind, the way I view that is that, um, the truth always comes out. This is another recurring theme in the Bible. The truth always comes out and good uh, will always triumph, right? In the end, um, you know, bad or evil will have its way for a time. And, and you can apply that to whatever context, you know, if you want to sure. take that and apply it to today's cultural context, um, you, can do, you can do that. Um, and ultimately, um, what's happening is so, because what happens it, the bad things happen when we replace God with humanity, when we replace God's role with humans trying to perform God's function, you know, and be God, right? And, and that, that's what's happening in our culture is that we create laws to, to, um, to make people more moral, right? We try to create laws to make you behave the way that we think you morally ought to behave. You don't say the right things. You don't act the right way. So we're going to create laws or we're going to shame you or we're going to cancel you or whatever, because we have decided in our, you know, 
in our omnipotence that we know better than you do. And so it basically people acting like, ah, that's what they're trying to do, right? You're not allowed to speak the wrong thing or do the wrong thing. It's them acting as though they have superior knowledge and understanding. And because of that, they need to, they need to punish you if you don't line up with what they say and what they do. They're trying to act like, uh, like they have moral certitude, right? Um, that they came to on their own. And when they do that, it screws up society because that's not their job. Um, anyway, but all of that being said, the picture you mentioned in Joseph is a great picture of forgiveness. And it also illustrates a truth, which is I'm not God and I can't do his job and I shouldn't try to do his job. And ultimately, if you read, if, you know, you read down the line of the descendants of those, those brothers, um, their, their families eventually pay the price for their crimes to some degree, you know? Um, it's a sort of, it's an interesting history over the course of the next several books, but. So speaking of that, um, well, actually I have one more thing I wanna comment on in Genesis. And then I have a question for you, uh, for me looking forward into Exodus. The last comment I wanna make that I really liked, and I, I just wanna know your take on it here quickly is, as people are dying, all the passages of people dying end with, um, you know, he breathed, breathed his last breath, or he breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death. Um, and I personally really liked that line. Yeah. Um, I liked the the, I guess the approach there, um, primarily because the way it sounds. Um, and this is intentional, I understand that obviously, is that one, it is just a part of life, right? Mm -hmm. Two, you're now joining a different club, right? right? You are joining your ancestors in death. It is not even, it's not even remotely like sad at that right. point, right? Um, it is, it's just a part of the cycle. Right. And I, I just curious how you interpret that. Yeah. I, well, and as a Christian, death means something different to folks than it does to folks who don't believe, right? Because mm -hmm. we believe in an afterlife. We believe in heaven. We believe in a hell. And so, but if you have a relationship with God, um, if you, you know, if you have in our mind, if you've accepted Christ as the, as the, the way to achieve forgiveness for the sin that you've, You've, you've done in your life, we all have, then ultimately the afterlife for you is heaven, right? So that, that, that isn't tragic. And I mean, they're still going to be crying at the funeral, but it's not, it's not a tragedy. Mm -hmm. And that starts here in the Old Testament, right? Um, I love the way this is phrased too, because it really does make it sound like they lived their life on purpose. It was filled with so much. And then when they were done, they moved on to the next part, you know, they, yep. they, they join their ancestors in death. It's not like they died. It's not like a tragedy occurred. It's not like there's escaping hole in the earth now and no one else can move forward. It's, it's that, okay, their portion was concluded. They moved, they joined their ancestors in death. And um, in, our, in our tradition, they moved on to whatever came, comes after this, to an afterlife. Well, for me, the way, because I, I have certainly given a lot of thought about my mortality over the years. Um, a lot of people avoid that, especially when they're young, um, but I never have. I've always just been fascinated by all these topics, right? Right. Um, I, I love the intellectual pursuits. Well, 
if I'm thinking on a more like cosmic level, I feel absolutely empowered and, and unendingly gracious to exist, right? To even mm-hmm. have this opportunity to exist. The odds are against you ever existing as we understand it, right? right. And for this brief, most brief moments of time, because the 80, 100 years that I might live, if that, or maybe a little longer due to technology, who knows, but it, no matter what, it is, it is brief on the cosmological scale. True. And I have to understand that this is a part of, you know, if I'm, if I'm coming at this from my, you know, usual perspective, I have to understand that this is all human life or biological life, a planet that is thriving, right, mm-hmm. with life, is all one small part of this grander functioning of a universe. Right. And whenever it says breathed his last and joined his ancestors in death, for me, even if there's nothing after, right, even if this is the end, that line is powerful to me because it right. just means it's a part of how things are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It is. I like to, I don't know where I picked it up at one point, but I like to uh, frequently, whenever I, I discover something, I like to fi- figure out, I'm like, well, or not figure out, but I like to comment. Well, it is the order of things, right? right. That's how, That's things how are. it happens. Right. Well, death is one of those. Well, so like I say, death has a different meaning for you if you are a, a, a believer in God and as specifically a Christian. Death means something mm-hmm. different. If you don't, if you believe that this is it, then, then that inherently can change your motivation for how you live day to day, right? Because if this is it, then um, why not satisfy every desire? Why not just do whatever the heck you want all the time. You only got 80 years, maybe a hundred. So just do whatever you want all the time. Perfect. And the short answer to that, of course, if, I'm an, if, I were, if I were an atheist, the short answer to that is because I wouldn't want, you know, I wouldn't want to have a year or two of great, great things and then the rest of my life of total misery because I screwed up my life, right? Um, so there's that, but, but, but ultimately my fundamental point is if you're a Christian, then that afterlife, is it motivates the way you live your life uh, in a different way than you're motivated if you don't believe in it. The incentive for how you live your life is fundamentally different. Right, and and it's not just because, um, well, I wanna live good now so that I get my reward, right? Which, there's that, there is that. It's huge, right? I mean, I I definitely, and and I for sure don't wanna go to hell, right? I mean, (laughs) there's certainly a punishment I'm trying to avoid. I have been guilty of making the argument that you just made um, which I, I, now I believe that that is a mockery. I don't believe that that's a valid argument, um, that people are, you know, believing in God and building this relationship with him as sort of a cop-out, like just in case kind of situation. Right. right. And that comes back to, this isn't what changed my mind, but I'm reinforcing that with, um, the line we talked about earlier, God will see it even if no one else does. Right. God will yeah. know. Right. Well, you know, if, if you believe it, God would know. Right. God would know that I, he, God knows your motivation. Right. Yeah. And, and so, um, and ultimately, even if you don't believe, and we talked about this yesterday, which last time, um, which was, is that 
even if ultimately you don't believe in God, if you follow the basic fundamental truths of life, which I think come from God, your life will just be better, right? If you live a hedonistic lifestyle that is sort of, which many atheists sort of tend toward, right? Uh, really smart ones don't, but, uh, but many do, which is like, hey, you know, um, the, the, the unthoughtful atheist will say, well, like, if, if there's nothing after this, I'm going to like make the most of this and party all the time and have sex with whoever I can and whatever, right? And ultimately, then you end up just screwing up your life. And so then you do that for a time and enjoy it. And then the rest of your life's miserable. So you actually do benefit from following the tenets of uh, the ultimate, like universal truths established by God, even if you don't believe in God. I think, though, that um, as a Christian, our motivation for, for our lives, which will ultimately culminate in death, uh, is that we not only want to have, go to heaven and receive this great reward, and really the great reward is like an intimate communion or relationship with God with no barrier. That's the actual reward. I mean, the streets are paved with gold. That tells you how little gold is worth, right? <laughs> so it's not about <laughs> so worth as much as asphalt and concrete, huh? Right. I mean, like you know, who cares? Who cares about gold? This, they make the they make the roads. Who, out uh, there. who builds the roads in heaven, by the way? I mean, I'm assuming God does, right? So because He can snap His fingers and make it happen. So, um, but ultimately, heaven is not about the material stuff. It's about the the communion or the relationship with God with no obstacle, no barrier, nothing between us, right? A very intimate relationship. And then, so that's what heaven's about. You don't live, and you live your life because you want to go to heaven, but Christians are also looking to take as many people with us as possible, right? Because even on earth, where we don't have as intimate a relationship as we will in heaven, we have this relationship with God that, in, that provides so much inherent meaning and changes the way we live our daily life. And we know that we can pray and that God hears and that he answers. And if you have that relationship and you feel that and you know that, then, then the people you really care about, you kind of want them to know about it too, right? And so it's that, it's that ultimate motivation that A, I wanna to go to heaven, I want to take as many people as I love and frankly, as many people period as I possibly can with me. Um, and I'm trying to avoid hell, of course, so, but that, that informs the way I relate to other people. And it informs the way I behave in public because not only is God watching, but you never know who else is watching. Right. Um, and I want my influence to be an influence that takes people to heaven with me. So, so on that, I would be very interested because I, I think you have some knowledge on uh, a different topic or a different, you know, way of thought that um, I think we've discussed somewhat before. Um, and I'm just kind of thinking and putting this all together at this moment. But I haven't said this on the podcast yet because I didn't want to turn people off right away. Right. Um, but I, I, I'm a gigantic fan of the author and philosopher Ayn Rand. Um, uh, yeah. And for a long time, I would consider myself an objectivist and um, you know, I, I do subscribe to, you know, many of the things that she teaches. I think that she was a brilliant thinker um, and, a, and a, a treasure to humanity, specifically right. to America. That said, one of her nonfiction books and one of the primary, con, uh, you know, concepts she argues for is called the virtue of selfishness. Right. And that is predicated on her saying that there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the word selfish means. 
selfish, to live selfishly is to have concern for one's own interests and one's own values, right? And, and in an educated way, in a thoughtful way, using right. your reasoning mind to determine values that, that you're seeking, which in my view ought to mean your family and their welfare, your friends and their welfare, your, you know, your career and having a meaningful, uh, meaningful work that brings you contentment. Um, and ultimately that the aim of life is, is your, your fundamental moral objective is to be happy. Right. Right. I say that because what you just told me, I don't actually feel contradicts right. how I live my life in accordance with that. If I'm a Christian and I believe that at the end of my life, there will be one judgment, but if I live a certain way, um, a righteous way, which by the way, isn't a terrible way to live, you know, right. I, that's not a bad life. If you live a righteous life, you're going to be forming deep, meaningful relationships with everyone right. around you. You're going to be kind hearted. You're going to have this whole approach to life that is at, in the end fulfilling no matter what, right? You're gonna have deep, just a wonderful life. And, and if at the end of that, you end up in heaven, you're, you're being selfish. You are caring about yourself. And if you're trying to spread the word, not jam it down people's throats, but you're trying to spread the word and live by example so that others might be able to have the same kind of life as you and the contentment you have, and then ultimately experience that, direct relationship with God in the afterlife. Right. I would argue that is living a life of selfishness. Yeah. I, I think, I think you're right because, um, because the hedonists, I'm going to finish this off here. The hedonists, the people who are maybe they're atheists um, or they are disconnected they They are, you know, a theist, they believe in God, but they're otherwise disconnected and not practicing, you know, what they're supposed to. I would make the argument that those people are selfless. They are not actually making decisions that are in their best interest. Right. That reflect values that they have contemplated and decided on. Right. Um, and so on. So. Right. It's a thoughtless lifestyle, frankly. Um, uh, so I, I, I love Ayn Rand's work. I'm not a scholar of her work as you are sure. having, I mean, I read Atlas Shrugged and thoroughly the principles in there are fantastic. And then you lived it last year. Yeah. 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 The, um, ugh. she's like a prophet, basically a prophetess. So anyway, so many, so many things that she said are just happening now. Uh, anyway, but, um, but she and I disagree fundamentally on the role of religion in of society. Um, because she, and, and by the way, I know if this, if, if people are watching, there are some people who are going to say, Oh God, this guy brought up Ayn Rand. I'm done listening now. Right. Right. But here's the thing. The problem, she, the problem that the problem is her take on religion, which mirrors frankly, what a lot of people's take on religion is that you take religion, you take the way people use religion poorly and, and show that as what religion actually is. Right. You take the way people I agree use Christianity negatively and abuse the idea of Christianity and take the credibility of Christianity and use that as a cudgel against others. And then take that and paint that as that, well, that's what church is. That's what Christianity is. And it's not, right? So, so it's almost like her version of Christianity is essentially a straw man. Um, and then she argues against it. So that's where I have a fundamental disagreement with her because I think, I believe essentially what you said, which is that, that, um, 
Christianity is not about using your moral superiority to cudgel others into behaving the way you want to behave. Christianity is not about regulating behavior. That ends up being the ultimate result, right? But it's not about it's not about a set of rules that regulate your behavior. It's about establishing this relationship with who created us, a relationship that every every soul longs for. And if you don't find it with with God, you fill it in with something else, you know, drugs or alcohol or environmentalism or whatever. Um, but you find some other way to fill that hole. We're just built that way because we were created for this relationship. That, and Christianity is about propagating that relationship that then because of that, you behave a certain way, you act a certain way and create a much more orderly society as a result. And our ultimate goal is not to culture you in, my goal is not to cudgel someone else into the right behavior with my rules. My goal is to follow God in such a way that other people also want to follow God, right? Um, and she she takes the cudgel version of Christianity and and obliterates it, which so it I, deserves I, obliteration, right? So I but. think you are. I think that you are. I don't know, actually, I guess I'm, I'm excited. One of the reasons I'm excited about the Bible is because I'm and I said it in the first episode, I'm excited to learn how much of what I believed about the Bible or Christianity. I only believed because I had read other people, you know, say it right. That's sure. the whole purpose of this experiment is to know for myself. Right. Um, and that includes you know, what conclusions did I draw because of Ayn Rand and because I didn't use my own reasoning mind to come to that conclusion? Because um, there are certain big disagreements that I do hold um, with Ayn Rand already. So not to, you know, I'm just using her because she's a thought, right. you know, a thought leader, but for anybody. Right. And I don't know that I disagree with you wrong about how she uses it. I think that there are certainly examples of how, how people have used religion for bad, Right. And I have focused on that for most of my life is how people have used it for bad things, how they've used it to, you know, control people, right. manipulate people and so on. It's Every just, good thing can be perverted. Absolutely. Bad, right. It's Capitalism, just, as uh, I've capitalism been, the church, uh, you know, you name it. As I've been, you know, growing, I, I just feel as though the good that has been coming that I've been blinded to for a long time, mm -hmm. far outweighs all the bad things, you know, all of the perversions, right. I guess. So right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I want to end. And I know that you're on a time crunch here. I, I just want to make sure and say though. Okay. Say it. I want to tell you about the thigh thing. Oh, when he says, put your hand. Tell me about thighs. Right. So that's a euphemism. That's a euphemism essentially for grab a hold of my testicles and swear to me. That, that's the euphemism that they're using to say, I mean, I, we're gonna make this promise and it's gonna be so much that we're gonna hold each other. <laughs> so, and, this, and symbolize how closely we're tied that we could really hurt each other if we don't do this right. Uh, right, that, that's what that means. That's actually really funny. <laughs> It's funny you have said that because I don't know if I said it out loud in an episode. I've certainly said it not in an episode since then, but I have actually made the comment. I'm going to start making people grab my thigh when they make promises to me. Right, right. <laughs> you know, 
there. Yeah. yeah. I'm like, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough right. for me. Right. So, um, that's going to bring me a lot of great joy. Right. <laughs> right. So there you have it. You know that. So thank you. So looking forward, I'm obviously moving into Exodus next. I wanted to ask you if there are any, if there's anything that I should have in the back of my mind when I'm reading Exodus. Um, <clears throat> so view Exodus as the beginnings of a salvation story, right? I, I say always be looking for a salvation story, right? That there is, uh, and, and you'll find, you know, somebody screws up and they pay the price and then God provides salvation. That pattern happens a lot. You saw it in Genesis a bunch and it's going to continue to happen. And ultimately Genesis is a ginormous salvation story. Um, and so keep, I would say, keep that in mind. Also keep in mind, um, God keeps his promises, right? He, he made this promise to Abraham all the way back. And essentially also made a promise back to Adam and Eve, right? But he made this promise to Abraham about his own descendants. And, and Exodus is a story of him continuing to keep that promise, even though maybe he shouldn't, you know, or, or we would, we maybe would have shaken the etch-a-sketch and walked away, you know, because it's, it's like he's keeping his promise to people who don't seem to really appreciate it sometimes. So okay. keep that in mind. Will do. Well, again, thank you, CJ, for continuing the Genesis discussion with me. Um, I really appreciate it. And I look forward to uh, the rest and certainly getting into Exodus. Yeah, it'll be fun. I'd, I'd love to talk anytime and I'll, I'll be keeping up with your readings. So that'll be fun for me to watch too. Okay, perfect. All right. <laughs> Have a great day. Bye. You too.